Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. And welcome to the latest episode of Definitively Speaking, the podcast where we have data-driven conversations on the current state of healthcare. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare, and your host for this podcast. I'm joined today by Ben Rooks, Founder and Managing Principal at ST Advisors, a boutique consulting firm providing strategic and financial advisory services to healthcare IT and healthcare services firms. Ben started ST Advisors in 2009 and has been somewhat of an industry gadfly for probably longer than he'd care to admit. One might even call Ben the Zelig of the healthcare IT industry. So Ben, thanks for joining me today. For our audience out there, can you give a quick overview of who ST Advisors is? Thanks, Justin. The Zelig reference uh, sort of is only going to work for us Gen X and older folks, but I, I, I'll take it as a compliment. Uh, so I founded ST Advisors after about a decade as a sell-side equity analyst, where I covered HCIT from the dark ages of 1993 to 2002, way before it was a cool sector. Ultimately, I realized I just couldn't bear the prospect of another quarterly earnings season, so decided to become an investment banker and help companies do stuff rather than provide the retrospective color commentary. And so I spent about six years bringing that domain knowledge to that side of the market. Um, for any number of reasons, banking just wasn't me. Uh, sure, that comes as a shock to you. So I, <laughs> I started an advisory practice based on, among other things, intellectual integrity and taking the research and banking skills, and then worked with my now partner, Michelle Masson-Hamilton, who has a corporate strategy background. So we take those three skill sets help our clients with strategy, as we did with you when you were at GE Healthcare, uh, with corporate development, where we act as almost an outsourced SVP of Corp Dev, uh, and what we call transaction support, where we act as an M&A coach, or I sometimes describe it, investment bankers or obstetricians, we're the birthing coach and helping companies go to market that way, because chances are the CEO has never done it. Uh, and then we have a few ongoing retainer clients who for whom we act as sort of a combination, consigliere, cheerleader, yenta, therapist uh, from time to time. <laughs> All right. Well, there's a bunch of uh, interesting images there, Ben. So I think that gets us right, jump right in, right? So <laughs> the reason I invited you on this podcast is that as long as I've known you, you have seemed to be smack dab in the middle of all the macro trends happening in the healthcare IT industry. So what's going on these days? Uh, one of the advantages of having a long tenure, which I guess is a nicer way of saying being on the older side, is I've been through multiple peaks and troughs in the sector, the first HCIT bubble, the dot-com bubble, et cetera. And this is definitely the longest peak I've ever seen. And I think it's the case for a few reasons, one of which is people finally recognize that better IT can have a real impact on the cost and the quality of care. Uh, so like Justin, when I had a buy rating on Cerner in 1994, I wasn't wrong. I was just early, as they say on Wall Street. <laughs> so look, one of the big trends right now in healthcare IT is M&A. You just talk, talked about it as a peak. 2021 was crazy. According to Baker Tilly, there were 872 reported healthcare M&A transactions that closed in the first half of 2021, which was up 15% from the 738 that closed in the second half of 2020. I think they're still processing the 2021 second half numbers. So why is there so much M&A activity going on right now? 
has healthcare fundamentally changed result of COVID? Does COVID impact this? Would this have happened without COVID? Help me understand some of this. Well, obviously, we can't run the experiment mm-hmm. uh, and see what would have happened without COVID. But I think there's a few reasons, and one of which was had been driving it for the past couple of years is low interest rates. They make the math easier. Lots of the deals are being financed with debt, and there's easier access to capital, so that fuels the fire. When I feel rich, I'm more likely to buy stuff. Um, and low interest rates over the past few years have driven a lot of inflows into private equity firms, and they've raised a tremendous amount of capital, giving them a lot of dry powder that they need to put to work. Uh, the limited partners aren't paying them to hold cash. And so we're seeing a lot of PE firms buying from other PE firms, but also the strategic buyers who, you know, rising stock prices that we've seen over the last few years and low interest rates, they start doing a make or buy analysis and realize, wow, I can acquire this solution or this customer base instead. And that's another driver here. And people are looking to shop for more solutions. And I think a lot of buyers, not meaning corporate buyers, but customers, a lot of them are thinking, gee, if I only had one throat to choke, life would be a little easier from that perspective. Interesting. So let's talk about one of those strategics, though. So Microsoft bought Nuance back in April for nearly $20 billion, its second largest, biggest acquisition after LinkedIn, of course, prior to the recent announcement that Microsoft's going to buy Activision. Why did Microsoft invest so much money to buy Nuance? I think part of it was it's a data play to get access to the transcription data that Nuance holds. But it's also another attempt of Microsoft to enter healthcare. You know, I I stole this line, uh, but healthcare is the biggest sector of the biggest economy in the history of the world. Everyone wants access to it. But you look at Microsoft's earlier efforts. They bought a bunch of companies, threw them together. Uh, with your uh, your old friends at GE and created Caradigm. And then they later sold off the parts of Caradigm for quarters on the dollar, pennies on the dollar, not dollars on the dollar, that's for sure. And we've seen a lot of other big tech companies do that. Why is it so hard for tech companies to succeed in healthcare? I think healthcare is in many ways fundamentally different. Uh, the buyer Part of it is the customers are different kinds of buyers. There's a lot more consensus buying in a health system than in a corporation. I think that the idea, the Silicon Valley, Facebook mentality of go fast and break things, we, I don't want my doctor to do that. I don't want my hospital to do that. They need to, you know, we, we saw that with Theranos. There's slower adoption. Uh, you know, I joke all the time, Rooks's second rule of healthcare investing is if you want customers that make rapid and rational decisions, probably don't want to be selling to hospitals. So it's a, it's a rough sector. I've seen over my career, a lot of executives and investors and companies say, you know, Justin, healthcare just needs better technology. And I will take my knowledge of technology and, quote, fix healthcare. And, you know, I'll smile and nod when they say that. And then six months later, I talk to them again. So how's it going? And they're like, what is wrong with these people? It's, it's amazing. I call it um, Steve Case phenomenon. When he started Revolution Health, he was a great example of that. So Ben, what is wrong with these people then? Why is it so hard? As I said, it's consensus buying. It is often the hospitals are resource constrained. Um, physicians, in many cases, they're small entrepreneurs and they don't necessarily want to spend a lot of money on an IT system. They never... So the stupidest thing I ever said in my career was... I saw, I got my first demo of an electronic health record in 
2003, I was a young associate analyst and I saw it and the guy who was demoing it showed me how it worked and how it could, and I said, wow, this is amazing. This can really change healthcare and improve the quality of healthcare and the way it's delivered. I bet in five years, every doctor will, I can't even say it with a straight face. I bet in five years, every doctor will be using one of these. Boy, again, not wrong, just early. Uh, But what it took for adoption was we, the taxpayers and the federal government, had to spend billions and billions of dollars paying the docs to adopt it. it. It's just really slow and different. I think the phrase that comes in my mind with a little bit of PTSD is a meaningful use. Yes. Um, and even when I was a research analyst covering the sector, I was in the healthcare group. Uh, I was not in the technology group. I sat down the hall from the analyst who covered Oracle, but in the group of the, the analyst who covered um, Pfizer, uh, for example, or a biotech company. There's always been this verticalization, and I think the needs and perspectives are just very different. And it takes there's some serious entry barriers. So I think as we're talking about these large technology companies, we'll call it diplomatically, finding themselves challenged to succeed feels about the right way to talk about it. Uh, the latest example of this we've been talking about is IBM. They just sold their Watson Health business to Francisco Partners. So. Do you think someone like Francisco Partners or, frankly, any private equity firm is positioned to succeed in healthcare IT than some of these large commercial public companies? It's a good question, Justin. And I think they are because the evidence of history suggests that they're good at that. I mean, it's harder, as I said, but if you look at Francisco Partners and in the interest of disclosure, I should say that ST Advisors has worked with a number of their portfolio companies over the years. Um they are smart investors and they have done these divisional carve-outs before. They bought a company called Capsule Technologies that was freestanding and owned by a telecom company that I have already forgotten the name of, um, but they ran it for a year or so, um, streamlined it, got rid of a lot of the sclerosis you see in larger companies and sold it off to Philips. And I think it was probably a great return for them. Similarly, they bought the McKesson pharmacy automation business and sold it to Omnicell a number of years later, another great return. So they're de-risking it through a number of mechanisms. Omnicell could have bought that product when it first hit the market. Philips, you'd think, was contacted when Capsule first went to market. But a lot of the big strategic buyers don't want to take a risk of an acquisition. So they will, and I've seen this happen over and over again, they would say, I'd rather pay 2x the price for half the risk or even 2x the price for a third less risk. And you bring it into a good private equity firm. And I'm a huge fan of the FP team. Fix a bunch of things that probably need fixing, create a better growth profile, get rid of a lot of the big company attributes that it might have had, and then you can sell it and make a great return. Got it. So as we surf around the private equity world, obviously we got to talk about Athena. Pretty much, are they running the same play here, selling themselves to private equity? Well, Athena wasn't exactly didn't sell itself to private equity. Uh, you'll recall there was a, a pretty nasty activist shareholder involved to sort of force the deal. Jonathan Bush, the, the founder CEO, didn't wake up and say, gee, I think I want to sell the private equity. Elliot uh, started acquiring stock. And I don't know if you read the New Yorker article about it, but literally was going through his trash uh, to help force the sale. Uh, I, you put that together. And then so they sold it to Veritas. 
And then Veritas acquired uh, a lot of the assets from GE Healthcare IT, put it together. It looks like it's a four or five X return uh, multiple they're getting on it. So they've certainly added value in that respect. Although I'll put added value in quotes. I wonder, I said to Jonathan and others at the time when the deal happened, is this going to make the lives of the other stakeholders besides the financial ones? Is it going to make the lives of Athena's customers better or the health systems better or the employees better? Uh, Athena was a transformational company in a number of ways. Um, were there a lot of cost savings that private equity and, and Elliott could force? Yeah, undeniably. Uh, but I wonder, and this is me getting old and philosophical again, there's more than maximized shareholder value that should be part of this, this idea of stakeholder capitalism. But I just saw they're raising a bunch of debt to finance the deal, and ultimately they'll probably be an IPO, and uh, a ton of investors will make a ton of money on it. So good for them. Interesting. Very interesting. So let's just, you know, stay in the EMR space right now because Lord knows there's a lot going on. We're, you know, 15 minutes in here and we finally get to discuss, you know, with the granddaddy of the ball. Larry Ellison spending $28.3 billion in cash, that's capital C-A-S-H, uh, to buy Cerner. So why is Oracle going to go buy Cerner for $28.3 billion? So let's ignore the price tag for a second. When uh, I read the press release on why they're doing it. They talked a lot about secure cloud applications. And I think part of the rationale is Google Cloud and AWS and Microsoft Azure are way ahead in healthcare cloud services. And this is a way Oracle can catch up to it. When I was asked what I thought was driving the deal from Oracle's perspective, though, my first reaction was um, hubris, uh, which, as we know, the gods tend to punish. If I were on the board of Oracle, my first question would be, why will you succeed when no other companies have in the past, no other tech companies in the past? You know, um, if for you, if you're a Princess Bride fan, Justin? I am indeed a Princess Bride fan, yes. So all I could think of is Vizzini saying, you fall victim to one of the classic blunders, the most famous of which is never get involved in the land war in Asia. Um, I would add to one of those classic blunders, tech companies typically fail when acquiring HCIT ones. And on that list, I've got like GE. GE had a huge healthcare business, but their acquisition of IDX and API healthcare were disasters. Uh, Siemens acquired SMS and in the biggest boom the sector had ever seen, lost market share. Uh, Mysis acquiring SunQuest and Medic, selling them off at great losses. Sage, medical manager, we talked about IBM, ADP, acquiring advanced MD. I, I could keep going, but I know we only have 40 minutes to speak and it's a long list. So I wonder what Oracle thinks they can do to succeed here where literally no other tech companies have been able to do good acquisitions here. You know, Nuance might be an exception. There might be a few others. Uh, 3M has made some good smaller acquisitions, but $28 billion in cash I, I wonder if folks like Francisco Partners and TPG and some other private equity investors, when they saw the news, went to their calendars, went like four years out and put, call Oracle and see if they're ready to sell yet. So a lot of our listeners actually work in hospitals and IPAs and other places that may be using Cerner. So if I'm a Cerner customer or a Cerner user, should I be worried? 
Um, I'd be worried that the ghost of Neil Patterson is going to rise from the grave and start a swath of destruction, the zombie apocalypse. But I think start, Oracle is not going to make substantive changes in the product architecture, I would think. Are they going to keep investing? You know, sort of seen a lot of changes since um, Neil's passing. And he was, I have to give him a ton of credit where all he predicted where the market was going well before anyone. When um, Judy Faulkner at Epic was still selling um, physician practice management software systems to large IDMs and hadn't even entered the hospital, Neil was talking about clinically focused patient data uh, well before any other companies there. So that's great. And what I wonder with Cerner is, are they going to lose their innovation? I know in the last year, there's been a huge exodus of talent from Cerner, lots of resumes hitting the street. So I think that's something I'd worry about. But man, if I was um, a salesperson at Epic going up against Sterner, I would have to try hard not to rub my hands and cackle with glee over the prospect of competing there. Unless, of course, you know, the worry for them would be, is Oracle just going to buy business and use their financial might to underprice for a while and maintain market share that way? That'll be interesting to see. I, my, one of my rules of M&A is immateriality means never having to say you're sorry. And if Oracle loses a lot of money on this over the next five years, will shareholders ever find out? But as I said, I would love to have been in the boardroom when they discussed whether to buy it and how much to spend on it. Well, I'm glad you brought up Epic because obviously with Cerner off the market, Athena being taken private, it begs the question, what's going to happen to Epic? Does Judy ever sell? So I've learned never to say never, but having spent some time with Judy uh, over the years, I think it's profoundly unlikely. And, and why would she? The marginal benefit of liquidity for her is non-existent. And look, I hope Judy lives another 100 years. She is brilliant. And brilliant is a term I use to describe very few people. But what's going to happen when she ultimately um, passes on? There's rumors of some kind of trust where Epic... Epic uh, equity goes to like a trust that's held by the hospitals that use it or something. Um, I'm fascinated by what's going on there. So if I could be in one board conversation, it would be Cerner Oracle. If I could read one will and testament and revocable trust, it would definitely be Judy Faulkner's. <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens to Epic. Uh, let's pivot a little bit. You've talked a lot about healthcare data. And, you know, I think Healthcare data is a big business, right? We're talking multi-billion dollar deals here, all of which, and I'm going to use this in quotes, to unite siloed industry data and air quotes. Let's take a look last year at one deal where we had Cyox Health, which merged with real-world health data company Datavant in a $7 billion deal. So the combined company, which will keep the name Datavant, will be the nation's largest health data ecosystem. And again, quoting from their marketing, enabling patients, providers, payers, healthcare data, analytics companies, patient-facing applications, government agencies, and life sciences companies to securely exchange patient-level data. That's a mouthful. So I'll kind of boil it back down and say, why does data matter so much in this space? And, you know, I could list up a bunch of other deals. Help me understand what's going on here. Well, data matters because healthcare, at the end of the day, when you treat a patient, you get data points about them, lab results, x-rays, you decide on a course of action, write a prescription, do a procedure, 
and see what the outcomes are, what's changed. And the data behind that can be mined to find out what is the best way to treat patient X. And I think there are a lot of data elements that we have no idea even what they look like yet. So my genotype being different from your genotype, will I respond differently to a drug, better or worse? So patients get uh, tamoxifen, uh, and if you don't do a genetic screen on them, it could be a waste of chemotherapy, suffering, and dollars. And none of those data, very few of those data exist in the EHRs. So with DataVent in their tokenization technology, they should be able to mine those data for a lot of interesting things. And there's value there. It's interesting. Uh, years ago, when I was a banker, I sold the first release of information company, Smart Document Solutions, and no strategic showed up to buy them. Uh, and they rebranded as Healthport. And I went on to sell Chart One, the number two player, and only one strategic showed up, and it was Healthport. Uh, and then we worked at ST Advisors to help develop the strategic plan for the third largest ROI vendor, a company called IOD. And when it sold, guess what? Only one strategic showed up and it was Healthport, although they'd rebranded as Ciox. Um, So we see, you know, the baseball card keeps getting created from PE fund to PE fund to PE fund. This is the most transformational thing, HealthSmart, Healthport, Ciox, the progression has done. I It'll be interesting to see how they can monetize those assets. But is there a strategic buyer for that business? I got to wonder, uh, maybe they IPO it uh, to get their liquidity because that's ultimately what New Mountain Capital is in the business of doing. But this is the most interesting acquisition I've seen in that release of information business. And it turns it into this huge data mart where you can find other ways to monetize it. Got it. So the, the next kind of related question, though, is, yeah, this is one data mart. And then, you know, that's at a, a macro scale. I've also got the micro scale data mart, which I refer to commonly as my iPhone, because my iPhone has, you know, my fitness activity, my weight, Lord knows what else. I've got, you know, 10 apps on there. It's got my COVID vaccine passport that I got at CVS, but my primary care doctor who's not affiliated with CVS doesn't know that I got a COVID vaccine unless I actually call and tell him that I got one. And, you know, then I talked to my telehealth provider, you know, three nights ago when I'm sick at 2 a.m. And so suddenly, you know, poor Justin's healthcare data is in 19 different locations. And so I guess the question I would have for you is, is there a business out there to stitch all of that together to create an integrated picture of my health? Or is that just a pipe dream and it'll never happen? You'd think there would be a business to do it. And I've spoken to people who've thought about the need for that business. The problem is who's going to pay for it? Who would you pay a couple hundred bucks a month for that? I wouldn't. Right. Uh, would your physician pay for it? Nope. Would your payer do it? You know, there've been chins and Rios and all these other exercises. It really, it needs to happen to prevent duplicate, duplicative tests and getting people the, the data they need. But I, for the life of me, can't think of a business model around it. So we're both um, techy, if not geeky kind of guys. Justin, I don't have a PHR, do you? Actually, I do have a PHR, yes. Oh, okay. But it's not all It's not all connected. It's, it's disaggregated in multiple different locations. I actually have three different PHRs. Oh, but so I would say that means, no, you don't have a PHR. I, I didn't define the term. A PHR is one that one ring to rule them all and have all those data. Oh, no, definitely not. I have <laughs> one or two friends who are polychronic with some interesting things, and they actually do have PHRs. Uh, and I forget if it's made by, if it's a Microsoft product with their Word 
solution or if it's a Google product with their Google Doc solution, but that's pretty much it. Uh, and they just keep a list of their meds and test results in, like I said, in Word or Excel or, or the cloud version of it. Um, but there is no true PHR. And I think in my life, one person has answered the question, yes, I have one. Yeah. No, mine is a, a folder on my iPhone that has my login to Teladoc and my login to Mass General and my login to CVS. And all the passwords are stored in my LastPass folder. Right. And then, you know, I log in and create it every time I need it. Yeah. Which is probably not ideal. That is, that is not a PA. To, to go back to the Princess Bride, PHR, you keep using that term. I don't think it means what you think it does. <laughs> um, now, there's been a few, the most interesting effort on that front I've seen is a company called the Commons Project. That's a good idea. And it has to happen. Sorry, it doesn't have to happen. Nothing in healthcare has to happen. It should happen. And I think it would improve, as with most IT, good IT solutions, it would lower cost and improve quality. But getting someone to actually pay for it and a way to make money out of it is less likely. But I remain optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of words that have multiple meanings, they may not mean what they want, and people struggling to make money off it, let's use the, uh, you know, the healthcare IT danger word, interoperability. People have been trying to get healthcare data interoperability for as long as I can remember. Are we any closer today? We're a teeny bit closer. Uh, in theory, the 20th Century Cures Act is supposed to prevent data blocking and drive more data sharing. You have CCDs, that's not really our interoperability, but it can solve the problem of interoperability through a clinical, uh, through C you know, continuity of care documents, CCDs, which gives my doc or your doc the information they need to transition the care in theory. ST Advisors worked with a company a few years ago called Diameter Healthcare, which is doing some cool stuff around interoperability there. But go back to the business model. Lack of interoperability has been a business model. You know, how much did Epic and IDX and those companies make from, oh, you want a report of XYZ? Great. No problem. That'll be $50,000. Or if I'm a health system, well, I guess we could make your data available, but we think those data belong to us. And letting the hospital down the street have access to them, that's not really to our advantage. Or I want to do this x-ray myself because I like the way I do x-ray. I, I heard, was in a physician office and listening to the receptionist talk about some answer a call where they were, she was saying, no, the doctor likes to do his own x-rays because he really likes how they're done. And I thought to myself, the doctor likes billing for x-ray fees. You know, doing um, basic race, spinal radiographs is not rocket science. And you know, physicians and health systems make money from doing procedures. And software companies make money from selling access to their data or helping you run a report to get your data. So a lot of people make money from not doing it. It's, it's one of the reasons why healthcare costs keep going up. What I view as an unnecessary procedure and perhaps the medical evidence views as a medical procedure someone somewhere thinks is their bread and butter or their, you know, Porsche and Hawaiian vacation. <laughs> wow. All right. So look, we've covered a, a lot of ground here and, you know, we didn't even get to pharmaceutical or medical devices. So I may have to have you come back and talk to me a little bit about those areas, but I kind of want to leave our audience with something to think about an outlook on to 2022. What should we expect this year in the M&A? Should we expect mental health mergers? Should we expect, you know, I won't even leave the witness here. What should we think about this year? I think the volume of M&A is going to continue this torrid pace we've seen. 
I see nothing to indicate it's going to stop unless there's a an exogenous black swan event like a huge interest rate rise or a market correction, which I have no one, anyone who tells you they can predict is uh, is lying. Um, so absent anything like that, for all the reasons we talked about, I think 2022 is still going to be going gangbusters. You've got dry, the dry powder on the side of private equity. You've got a lot of companies that have raised a lot of capital that are looking to put their money to work. It, it seems like all the investment bankers I know and all the PE investors I know and all the venture investors I know are all saying they're as busy now as they were 12 months ago. So the only thing that makes that stop is the investors and the bankers and the companies saying, yeah, we need to take a break. And I don't think that's too likely to happen. So I think it's going to be uh, full speed ahead. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Ben, thanks for hanging out with me today. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate taking the time. Oh, thanks for uh, inviting me on, Justin. It was really fun to, uh, to chat with you. Thanks for listening to Definitively Speaking, a Definitive Healthcare podcast. Please join me next time for a conversation with Dr. Mark Pimentel, the Executive Director of the Medically Associated Science and Technology Program at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. Dr. Pimentel will join Brittany and me for a conversation about the delayed healthcare from the COVID pandemic. Millions of people chose to delay care or had their care delayed by a hospital. And as a country, we're going to feel the impact of those delays for years to come. Dr. Pimentel will share his insight on all these delays and what we can do to mitigate a potential crisis. If you like what you've heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about how healthcare commercial intelligence can support your business, follow us on Twitter at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. Until next time, take care and please stay healthy.